Hi to everybody, and welcome to what is this, the 10th episode of the Calzumius podcast. I'm Patrick McKenzie, better known as Patty 11 on the internet, and I'm here with my buddy Keith. Hi, this is Keith. We are on the 10th episode, three and a half years in the making, probably the slowest podcast ever. I know every time we say that we're going we're gonna to kind of make these a little bit faster and do these a little bit more regularly, hopefully in this new year, 2015, we'll actually get that done. So here's knocking on wood. Knocking on wood. I think we ship uh, products and children about as quickly as we ship podcast episodes. <laughs> In fact, I think that's almost literally true. Yeah. Which segues much. great into the topic for today. We're going to be talking about what it's like to run a business as two guys who are very committed to being family men and not just to grinding away and uh, uh, burning the midnight oil on the work stuff as we might have done in our younger and stupider years. <laughs> I don't know. I, I still do that on occasion, but... Uh, having a family has definitely changed it. Yep. So we're going to talk a little bit about the family stuff in a few minutes, but uh, we want to uh, steal a march from uh, Rob Walling and Mike Tabor at the Startups for the Rest of Us podcast, which is one of my personal favorites. So they start off every episode with just a little update on what's new and exciting in their businesses. And I thought, hey, that's uh, kind of interesting to pattern after. So we'll try it and uh, see if folks like it. So Keith, we haven't heard much about Summit Evergreen recently. Why don't you start us off with that? So Summit Evergreen's been going pretty well. So May was our official launch. We're out of beta now, and we have, I don't even remember how many customers we have. We have a, we have a fair number of customers doing a lot of sales, so I'm really happy about that. We've awesome. started... For the folks who don't remember what Summit Evergreen is, because it's probably been two years for them, <laughs> it's Summit Evergreen in 30 seconds. So Summit Evergreen is a courseware platform. It helps people create and sell online courses on the internet. Think of it like Udemy or kind of like the courses that Patrick does, the lifecycle emails. The difference is that compared to Udemy or Skillshare or whatever, it's completely you branded. You're not just another guy on Udemy. It's all about you. It's on your domain, your URL, and it's all about your product and your branding. So that's what we do. And we just actually released our New Year's campaign, which is our annual campaign. So one of the biggest things that we find issues with is that people do not commit to building courses. Everyone always says, oh, I want to build a course. Oh, I want to build a product. Number one thing that has people fail is they're not committed to it. And there's a big psychological impetus, a big psychological effect when you put your money where your mouth is, when you commit something of yourself to your own success. And so we launched the annual plan, which we started uh, January 5th of this year. So that was yesterday. And it's essentially you get a 17% discount two months off if you sign up for a year. And we hope that not only are people going to enjoy the annual plan, but they're also going to use that as stopping creating excuses for themselves. So it's not going to be, oh, I, I need to get this course out someday. I'll, I'll do it when I have time. It's, okay, I've put my money where my mouth is. It's time for me to get this done, and I'm going to launch this year. And the people who do that, we see them... They've launched courses in five days, in one day, in, in hours, in weeks. And people who are committed, people who put that line in the sand, those are the people who succeed and send customers. Awesome. So Summit Evergreen has been, uh, for folks who haven't been following the story, it's sort of like a natural outgrowth of the consulting work that you and your co-founder, Rachel, were doing over the last couple of years. You were working with some of the larger publishers in the internet space who 
have these courses online and sell them for, uh, in many cases, large amounts of money, both on a per course basis and on an absolute basis. Mm-hmm. And so you're bringing some of the technology that you custom built for these publishers to the scales where somebody like, uh, well, either the two of us could actually, you know, implement it without having to like free write the courseware in Ruby on Rails like uh, right. I did. <laughs> exactly like you did, yeah. So instead, mm-hmm. a, a lot of the problems that people have is that when they start their own course, they're like, oh, if I want courseware, I either have to have something crappy that's running on WordPress or I have to hire a dev and pay him $80,000, $100,000 to build it. Mm-hmm. So we took the happy medium. We took all the knowledge, all the things that we've learned, built a system that works for actual product creators instead of people trying to sell software. Awesome. And so you've just launched annual pricing for it. Uh, you're starting to get a little bit of customer uptake and your early adapter customers are getting to the point in the life cycle where they're actually onboarding their customers so they're yep. seeing success with it. What's the you know next three-month plan for Summit? Next three-month plan, we have a bunch of joint ventures and I don't want to call them affiliates, but people who have publishing platforms already. Uh, not software, but publishing houses. They have lots of content creators and they want to come in and they want to work on Summit Evergreen and get their publishers onto Summit Evergreen as well. They're content creators there. So that's one thing that I think is very big for the next year. As far as software and features for our customers go, we're looking at better integration for lifecycle emails, better integration for that customer retention, which, I mean, if you've taken Patrick's course, you know that your existing customers are the number one way you're going to grow your business. Your existing customers are generally 70% more likely to buy than a new customer. And so focusing on existing customers to build out product orbits, to build out retention strategies and things like that, that's the way you're going to grow your business. And so first quarter, second quarter, 2015, that's really what we're looking to focus on is increasing that customer retention and increasing that product orbit. Mm-hmm. That's a great way to uh, demonstrate additional value to your customers, too, because many of them don't have the know-how of, say, a Brennan Dunn or a Nathan Berry, where those guys have, uh, through a lot of hard work, made a bunch of products which naturally feed into each other. Mm-hmm. And uh, so they've got basically a self-supporting ecosystem where they can step people through, make your business a little more successful by buying our book. After you've got the business a little bit more successful, that opens up new challenges for you. And I have a course which happens to slot directly into these new challenges to both keep increasing the value to the customer and then keep increasing the value to the business or content creator over time. Exactly. But one thing I do want to mention is that people look at these product orbits that they're called, like Brennan Dunn, Nathan Berry, Amy Hoy has, and they think, oh, I can never get 12 products out or I can never get three products out. You only need one or two products or two or three products. And they're not hard to make. If you look at... um, Nathan Berry's 24-hour product challenge, which he did again this year, um, really, really amazing. He and Amy Hoy both did it, and Amy Hoy put out Just Effing Ship, which she put it out in 24 hours, and it's a saleable product. She made some good sales on it, and it doesn't have to be this amazing course. There's a lot of content you can make for at that beginner and beginner level, right? And the, those kind of gateway products are really more effective as product orbit than larger products. Okay, so that makes sense. You want to hear my update on Appointment Reminder? I was just about to ask, what's been up with Appointment Reminder? So I've kind of lit my uh, fire under myself for the first time with Appointment Reminder since my daughter was born. Not since my daughter was born. Um, So I've been running Appointment Reminder for four years now. It's been kind of like the redhead stepchild of my business for those four years. I wasn't really passionate about the problem space 
And I always kind of treated it as an afterthought, even though every year I said, okay, my goal for this year is to finally do some major work on a pointer reminder. Right around when my daughter was born in October, I started to get kind of serious about it. Indeed, with the thought that, okay, I'm going to execute on this seriously for 12 to 18 months, get it to a a happy point, and then do a check-in on whether I want to continue with that business or spin it off to somebody and, uh, you know, sell the business and start doing something that I enjoy a little bit more. Since like committing seriously to appointment reminder, it's actually been almost fun. I spent two months last year working in a very new dad kind of just fits and spurts fashion on doing infrastructure for onboarding my first couple of employees into appointment reminder. Um, they're actually consultants, not employees, but, you know, finally getting some help on the sales and uh, uh, support front, building the CRM integration that would let the sales rep do her work yada, yada, yada. And I've gotten, you know, in the process of managing that sales process, I'm actually starting to do a little more of the you know, day-to-day grind on it, which is helpful because, you know, if I don't respond to inquiries from people, then they don't buy software. So I've been responding to inquiries. We've lined up two opportunities for major integrations with platforms that uh, trades businesses use. So I'm working on those this week and hoping to ship them by the end of the month. Uh, both of them have kind of like a sponsoring customer where we've got basically a soft commit. Uh, you know, I sent them a one-page letter of intent that they agreed to where uh, if we ship this integration by the end of the month, then they commit to buying appointment reminder at, you know, whatever the price is and the price is in the somewhere above where the publicly available plans are right now, but uh, not hundreds of thousands of dollars. Oh, speaking of publicly available plans, I'm uh, finally taking my own advice and charging more. As of uh, <laughs> February 1st, the pricing is moving from uh, $29.79, $199 to uh, the entry point is going to be $99 uh, for modestly higher quoted than we've done before. That's actually scaring me a little bit. I was talking over with somebody and uh, I wanted the new entry point to be $49. And he said, as Keith has said on occasion, have I listened to myself for the last couple of years? The most successful clients that we have are the ones where the businesses are executing on a certain amount of scale. And so they literally have like full-time people who are just, you know, slaving away on the phones every day. And uh, appointment reminder can replace that for much less than the cost of a full-time person. But by contrast, uh, we've got a lot of customers who have say, you know, five appointments a day. So five times 20 workdays in a month is 100 appointments. And uh, they get value out of appointment reminder and they pay us 30 bucks a month, but they're not the like heart of the business. And honestly, uh, you know, it's been just brutally difficult to build up a business to a reasonable scale on $30 a month chunks. So going to be refocusing on the types of businesses where it's worth at least a hundred dollars a month to them to have this problem solved, yeah. which is largely the trades businesses, medical, et cetera. Ooh, medical. Um, <laughs> so we've had medical customers for point reminder for about two years now, uh, but it's been kind of on the, on the DL hush hush kind of thing uh, for hyper compliance reasons. We were kind of skirting the edges of hyper compliance. And so we had <laughs> promised hyper compliance to people on a very limited basis. It required us doing custom legal work with each customer that got onboarded. Uh, we weren't ready to scale that. As of some uh, engineering and process work that I've put in, in the last two weeks, uh, we're finally ready to scale hyper compliant accounts for appointment reminder, nice. which is going to require me going out to like the 50 people who have. Uh, medical businesses that are using us but are not on a hyper-compliant account at the moment and getting them to 
sign a business associates agreement, which is the, the last bit of paperwork that we need for them. And then uh, I've already flipped a switch on the back end to start treating their accounts in a hyper compliant fashion, which means I won't bore you with the details because it could take up a whole podcast, but we have to encrypt their information on disk, which we're doing for everybody now. And we have to enforce some procedural safeguards about access to their accounts, like enforcing a password rotation strategy, which we don't do for normal accounts. So I'm, I'm curious, are you going to be upgrading those plans to a higher tier for that hyper compliance or are you going to? So as of uh, February 1st, we're going to have like hyper uh, compliant uh, accounts available like on the pricing and plans page. Mm-hmm. And they're just going to be straight up to X what it would be for the same account tier at a, um, at a non-medical provider. Like medicine as a business, right? You just charge <laughs> yeah. two, 2X as much for, for literally it's the same thing. But we promise you formally that we're doing all the right things with regards to security, which we only promise informally if you're right. a... Uh, a accounting firm, for example. But for our early adopters, for these first 50 doctor's offices that are using us, I'm going to get in touch with them this month and say, look, um, formally you're using you know $500 worth of services a month and you're paying us 50 a month, but since you got in early and you've been with us for the last few years, I'm going to grandfather you in at that $50 a month or whatever it was pricing, contingent on you making sure to get this document signed for me this week because I need you to sign this document so that if, knock on wood, this never happens, but if the Department of Health and Human Services audits us, I need to have these business associate agreements in place with all of our medical customers. And similarly, if our medical customers get audited, they need a BAA with us or they'll fail the audit uh, automatically. But many of the folks in the medical industry, uh, especially on the lower like not the major hospital chains, but uh, independent doctor's offices right. have been kind of dragging their heels on compliance with HIPAA as they drag their heels on a lot of things. I can imagine. I can imagine. I'll be very interested to see how the the $90, the $99 low plan works out for you. I think you're right. It's going to get rid of a lot of the low tier high support customers. And so you're only going to have people who are really serious about business because as we've stated before on the podcast, $99 to someone who's serious is really nothing. It's literally like less than one third of the cost of publishing this episode of the podcast. <laughs> and that's not even the time cost. Like we have plus or minus $250 of a, uh, of hard costs associated with publishing a marginal uh, podcast episode. Yeah. I mean, you figure like I just bought a $20 recording software. You just bought a $20 stabilizer. Like it adds up. But yeah, I mean, you look at some of our customers for Summit Evergreen, the people who are successful, the people who have big businesses who are getting million dollars of revenue through Summit, they are people who have support staff, they have Zendesk or Freshdesk, they have a CRM, all of which are more expensive than Summit Evergreen, even though our lowest price point is that $99, right? <laughs> you think of a CRM Infusionsoft, it starts at what, $150, $300? Entreport, I know, is $350 a month. It's $99 of small potatoes to real businesses. So anyhow, the plan is, um, oh, by the way, uh, if you don't follow my blog and didn't read the end of the year update, I'm starting to be public appointment reminder numbers. It's currently at about uh, 6.5K a month in monthly recurring revenue. Very nice. Plus an undisclosed amount on enterprise plans. So my goal for mid-2015 is to get that to 15K a month in monthly recurring revenue, which uh, after you subtract out the cost of goods sold for the business, so basically my massive Twilio spend, and also after you subtract out the uh, kind of like on-target compensation for my uh, consultants, 
then that leaves me with about you know plus or minus 10k a month of uh, profit for the business. Mm-hmm. And then I think if it hits the magic 10k a month number, it will be in a good place for either me continuing it or for spinning it out into a variety of possible acquirers. Um, and we'll think a little bit more about that. Why I want to spin it out in six months as opposed to 18 months is a story for another day, but uh, we're not public about that information yet. Sounds good. And we want to talk about uh, family today. So. Yes, we want to talk about family. Ooh, can I give the, the news about the new entrant to my family? I'm going to say no, but then I'm going to say yes. Yes. <laughs> so, uh, Rico, my wife, and I were pleased to welcome Lillian, our daughter, into the family as of uh, October, middle of October. I know the date, but I don't want the internet's knowing the date because for some reason that is, you know, treated as secret information that allows you to open up credit card accounts in the name of a two and a half month old baby. Who knew? Anyhow. So that brings us up to a total of three in the family, Keith and, uh, and company. You guys are up to four, right? We're up to four. Yeah. I have a four year old and a two year old now. Mm-hmm. Now, both of us previously did, uh, did times in the salt lines at Japanese organizations. So we are no strangers to overwork and, uh, Depending on the day, I think both of us kind of, we occasionally get a little too ramped up in this. I think that's fair That's a good explanation, I guess. Yep. That is, you know, so, when I'm doing my deep thoughts and uh, on where I want my career and life to move and what's really important to me, spending 12 hours a day doing integrations for you know, software is probably not it. So uh, let's talk a little bit about kind of our life before stuff. So we've talked about when we were at the the Japanese megacorps and how it was soul crushing and we worked God 16, 18 hour days, etc. Mm-hmm. When we left that, now you left before me, I kind of carried over that same work slash time ethic. And I was working around 16 hours a day, I believe at that point, 16 to 18, I guess. How about you? When you left your company and got over that initial shock of, holy crap, now I'm free. How much were you generally working it went all over the place. So I had a good six months there, and you might remember this, of just total burnout where yep. I did virtually nothing and just uh, slept for most of every day. Probably a bit of undiagnosed depression going on there too. And then after I stabilized in the business and started to uh, spin up on consulting, it went all over the place. The most consistent thing about my business for the 2010 to 2012 timeframe was inconsistency. Uh, like there were many days where I did absolutely nothing. Uh, there were many days where I just answered email for, uh, you know, 20 minutes to an hour and then called it a day. Mm-hmm. And uh, then there were some days where at the time I was courting Rudico, um, you know, on a day where she was working, there was basically nothing else for me to do in Ogaki other than either play League of Legends or work on my business. So there were some days where I, you know, got up in the morning at, uh, 11 o'clock or so, dragged myself out to a cafe, had some breakfast, and then just coded straight for eight hours and then went home. And there were some days when you did the same thing, except instead of coding, it was League of Legends. So. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> or, you know, somebody once did a time graph of my Hacker News comments, and you, it is impossible to identify core sleep hours for me, which is a little disconcerting. So there were, you know, some days when I was... Uh, hacking on work or work-related things at like 4 a.m. in the morning and Mm -hmm. a heck of a lot more where I slept in until like 2 p.m. Lots of inconsistency. Um, One of the things that since getting married and particularly since having a kid, uh, I'm trying to get on a a quote-unquote more human time schedule. So 
my schedule today was pretty representative. I woke up at uh, woke up at eight o'clock, played around with uh, Lillian until about nine o'clock, and then left for the cafe at ten. I typically take one hour a day to go to a cafe, have breakfast, listen to podcasts or something, kind of plan out my day. Then I got into the office at 11, and I'm going to be at the office here from 11 to 4, working on a combination of A, publishing this podcast, and B, uh, you know, my my three goals for the day on what I want to get done for appointment reminder. And then right. at the end of the, you know, at 4 o'clock, going home, family stuff for uh, the early evening, and then I might do, you know, maybe an hour or two of uh, work later in the you know, 10 o'clock-ish time frame, which is kind of like peak hours for me. So it's interesting to me that you, you mentioned waking up, you said eight or eight, eight, eight or nine, and we're playing with Lillian, and then you went to the, the cafe. Because when I quit my job, I already had my first daughter. And there was still within me that I can work whenever kind of time frame. So I would sleep in, like the, the kid wakes up at five or six or whenever she woke up because she was a baby. And my wife, gracious that she is, would take care of her in the morning. I might sleep in if I had been up till four coding. I might wake up early and start coding. But I had kind of that free form schedule because the baby was just a baby lying around at the house, right? And so I, I would go into the office. But it, I mean, it was so free form. The number one thing that now I have to have an actual time schedule. So I have an actual time schedule each day. And the reason for that is because my girls are in school now. They're in preschool. And they have to be at preschool at a certain time. I have meetings starting at a certain time because now I know that I can't just have a meeting whenever because I have to time it with taking the kids to school, getting them ready in the morning, making sure everyone's fed, making sure I'm fed, right? <laughs> and same at night. Kids come home 4.30, they, pr they practice their piano, do whatever. Dinner's at 5.30 because if dinner's not at 5.30, they're not getting in the bath. If they don't get in the bath, they're not getting into bed. They're not reading their stories. They're not getting into bed. And suddenly it's 9 o'clock and they haven't gone to bed yet. So it's interesting. Once the kids reach a certain age where they have a schedule, your <laughs> schedule then 100% changes because you have to apply what you're doing to them. This is applying the magic of consulting pipeline management to the day-to-day -day management of a household. <laughs> and to be perfectly honest, it has helped my business so much to have this rigid structure. And I think we'll talk about this more in a second. But having this structure is just really important, both from a work-life balance, and then also from a productivity balance. Mm -hmm. I think uh, the word forcing function might be relevant here in that either of us could probably have pushed for a, uh, you know, rigid defined, defined structure earlier in life, but having children sort of concentrates the mind and gives you uh, both a sort of like a rationale for figuring out what the changes you need to make in your mm -hmm. business slash day-to-day uh, -day productivity slash life are to you know, accommodate these sudden new demands on your time in a way that uh, since failure is not an option, given that we're fathers, uh, <laughs> then it uh, succeeds where a bunch of New Year's resolutions in previous years did not. And that's one interesting thing. You know, a lot of um, startups and stuff they and even Japanese companies, they talk about, oh, if you have a family, well, you're not going to work hard for us. You're going to be focused on your on your family. I find myself not only working harder, but also being more productive because I have that sense of failure. If it was just me and I lost my job. Eh, so what? I'll go find another job. Right. If I lost my job having to feed a family of four, it's a lot more stressful. It's a it's a lot more stressful. It's a lot more it motivates me to succeed and do better 
because I know I have so much more to lose. These people, my, my daughters, depend on me. They can't go out and get a job. They depend mm-hmm. on me to, to feed them, to clothe them, to put them in school, and also to be a good father. So I have to improve what I'm doing and improve the work that I do in order to be more successful for them. It's no longer just my enjoyment or my life on the line, right? Yep, totally understood. Man, I don't know. I think we get into an extended discourse on manhood or adulthood in the modern age. Uh, I definitely did not feel at, uh, say, 29 that I was a bona fide adult yet, despite you know running a business that was theoretically uh, making some other folks lots of money. Then got married and didn't quite feel like an adult yet. But uh, now that I have a, a little infant who is easy to break and will literally <laughs> die if I do not treat her correctly, I suddenly feel like a certified adult. So, uh, yeah, I've been kind of like kicking things in the gear on that. Yeah, exactly. Can I, let's talk a little bit more about that Silicon Valley mindset, though. Yeah. The, man, um, so I orbit Silicon Valley at a certain level of distance, partly through Hacker News participation and partly because I had a number of uh, consulting clients or less formal uh, business connections out there. And I used to go there maybe twice a year or so to catch up with people. And a very common thought in the sort of startup ecosystem is that uh, you've got to like make, make hay while the sun shines. Your 20s are the time to work like an absolute dog, do you know 70 or 90 hour weeks, get an exit. And then after you have the exit, you can get married and have kids if that's your thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's a lot of the folks in Silicon Valley kind of look a little askance at that being your thing. But it's like, oh, he wants to have kids. Nothing wrong with that. Um, anyhow uh, be that as it may I think it's one of those curious like youth focused myopias that the industry has Mm -hmm. you know there's many many jobs which are objectively speaking more you know intense on a time scale or less forgiving of like juggling multiple obligations than say working at a Silicon Valley startup or even founding a Silicon Valley startup is if you're a partner at a law firm, you can't just roll into the office at 2 p.m. and say, well, sorry, everybody, late night partying, uh, which most startups will tolerate pretty decently if you only do it occasionally. It's really interesting because, you know, both uh, my father and my grandfather are both entrepreneurs. And my grandfather, I think he started his main company at 35. And my dad was, I think, 40 or 42 when he started his company. Mm-hmm. So by current Silicon Valley standards, they were, they were ancient. Right, like yeah. who's going to be an entrepreneur at forty-two? But they build huge, successful companies. Yeah, uh, can I tell you a priceless anecdote on that? I would love that. Someone who read to me as being about like twenty-three asked me when I was thirty on a trip to Silicon Valley. So, aren't you supposed to be a VC now? I mean, your career is pretty much over, right? <laughs> because you're thirty. It's like. Okay, man, that is a forehead-slapping-inducing moment for me because, oh, man, you're so young. You, you understand nothing yet. But I think both of us, like, we plan on doing this for essentially forever. And uh, probably 98% or so of the value that we're going to create in our careers is in the you know, forward mirror as opposed to the rear view mirror. Oh, definitely. So, man, it's, uh, it's so crazy. This is one of the reasons that I can never, like, commit to doing the... Uh, the Silicon Valley lifestyle, just because the social construction of that lifestyle seems to be, frankly, bonkers. Yeah, I mean, not not all of it. Like you can't you can't generalize because there are some amazing things going on. But there's a lot that well, I mean, you you and I both went up there, 
and we're talking to a lot of people and it felt like college plus two, right? Mm -hmm. College plus two with, uh, oh, there's so many, so many things about that. We, we might do that in a different episode. Let's talk more about our beautiful daughters because they're much more fun. <laughs> well, I want to, I actually want to talk about something interesting that we, we briefly mentioned on, which was how we have these time constraints and mm -hmm. it's forced focus, right? And I remember a, a little while ago, there was a talk about comedy on Twitter and how comedy on Twitter and how discourse on Twitter was changing the way that comedy worked and not improving, but creating a whole different genre of comedy because it was limited to those 140 characters, right? Mm -hmm. And it was talking about how limitations to art forms create better art forms in certain situations. It's the whole limitations create creativity. And I really think it's the same with work. When you have forever to do something and you have no constraints and you have no, no set budget, let's say, you have no set budget either for money or time or what needs to get done, things take a long time. You decide, oh, I'm just going to do it myself. And you don't have that focus because you don't have any external constraints. And so we were talking about, especially when the kids go to school and even now with you, you come home at a certain time. I have a hard stop. 5.30, lights go off in my office, I'm at home, right? I can work after that. After the kids go to bed, I can go back to work. But at 5.30, I have to stop no matter what. So now I have limited time and I have these hard stops that I must obey, right? Mm -hmm. A lot of people think this is a bad thing and it's not. It's a good thing because this is the basis of business, because whenever you're running a business, whenever you're doing a business, there is so much more to do than you have time or the ability to do. And so you have to learn to delegate. You have to learn to prioritize. And having these external forces, these external walls making you these limitations, it forces you to be smarter with your time. It's mm -hmm. no longer viable for me to spend 20 hours deciding if we're going to use Apache or Nginx and tweaking the config files and everything, because there's a hundred other things that I need to be doing with my business besides setting up this one server. So what do I do? I delegate it to someone, right? Because yeah. it takes five minutes of my time. It might take them 20 hours and that's, and that's fine. That's what I, I pay them for. Do you find that you do more delegation now that you're a little more constrained than the amount of time you can put into the business? Delegation has always been my hard point. I always want to do things myself because I love solving the problems, but it's gotten to the point where I have to delegate. So to answer your question, yes, I delegate much, much more. I had done that talk at Make Leaps up in Tokyo, and you had retweeted that we were talking about meeting notes. And the biggest thing I've done is delegating meeting notes so that I record the calls, they go to my note taker, and they pull out the to-do items and everything. So I'm not sitting there rewriting all my to-dos and putting them in Asana or Jira, making all my calendar invites and everything like that. Anything yeah. that is not moving the business forward, I think needs to get delegated to something on my team or someone on my team. This is historically one of the big differences between your business and my business because um, while we do roughly similar things, we were both consultants for a while. Uh, we both have product businesses now with different levels of consulting still remaining in the business. I had always been kind of like a solo shop until recently, and you have had for the last couple of years a team of uh, contractors who assisted you with the Perusian's consulting services, mm -hmm. and now you know helping out with that day-to-day -day business administration. It's been kind of a major thing for me that I was a solo bootstrapper, accent on the solo, 
uh, for the first ooh, eight years or so of running my business, and that changed recently. And uh, I think it probably wouldn't have changed, but for uh, you know, the birth of my daughter being a forcing function, I think. Man, it must have been the TMBA guys, uh, Tropical MBA, mm-hmm. another great podcast, who said that there's basically like three levers that you get to adjust productivity in a business. You have your time, your level of savviness, and uh, money that you can throw at problems. And so if you want to you know, increase the number of sales that your business is doing, you either have to throw your time at making the sales, like throw savvy at like, producing systems or you know, being better at sales than the average bear, or uh, throw money at the problem either on you know, lead acquisition or on paying someone to do your sales work for you. Right. And uh, like we said a little bit ago about constraints driving the business, back when I was a salary man, I had no time and I had no money. And so 100% of why Bingo Card Creator worked was like savvy, savvy, and more savvy on the automated marketing front. Mm-hmm. And that probably actually helped develop my savvy muscle because I was exercising it so much. Once I went on to my doing my own stuff full-time, I didn't have as hard a constraint on time anymore. And while I probably increased on like absolute levels of savviness, the percentage of like my maximum capability of savviness that I was using on a day-to-day business and the percent I was growing in terms of savvy probably decreased because there were a lot of problems where I could have solved them with additional thought, but I just threw hours at it because I suddenly had a lot of hours to throw at things. Right. And it's interesting because not only do you have a lot of hours to throw at things, but Menial tasks are easy to do, yeah. right? And they certainly feel like you're winning when you're doing them, yep. which is the most toxic thing ever. I just took all my addresses from Evernote and put them into Excel so I could print out Christmas cards. Like, I was very productive today, yep. except for the fact that that took me eight hours. Mm-hmm. And that's a full billable day that went away. Or I could have hired a VA to do it for $10, $15 an hour. Mm-hmm. What, what's the bigger win there? And it feels like I was so productive, but when you look at the benefits to the company or just the benefits to my life, like mm-hmm. that's eight hours I'm never going to get back. I could have done so much in those eight hours, mm-hmm. but it felt good while I was doing it. Yep. I think some of the work like that is it has that seductive quality of like feeling like work, even though it doesn't meaningfully drive the business forward. Mm-hmm. I'm probably... I've been doing a lot of uh, architecture slash underpinnings work to get appointment reminder in a better situation to move more accounts in the next six months. And uh, like yesterday, for example, I spun up a new server to decouple the marketing site from the infrastructure for the main application, uh, which I'm glad it happened. It has needed to happen for a few years now. But rationally speaking, I should probably have found a sysadmin available for this. And uh, just thrown a couple hundred bucks at them and had them do it rather than, you know, losing a day or two to make a, you know, 90% solution. And I'm trying to get better at that. Like I'm finally, you know, finally working with a uh, salesperson to do some of the sales activity. I have a, a knock on wood repeatable sales process in place for her so that like I just, you know, copy pasted out what uh when I've said and done before that actually resulted in us closing deals and then uh, mm-hmm. we'll have her you know, turning the crank at it every day rather than me turning the crank at it. Exactly. I think it's interesting. You know, you said that you had that, that pride of being a solo um, entrepreneur, a solo founder, solo um, product guy with your software. And it's interesting because, you know, when I started doing the consulting, the products, I already had one child, mm-hmm. right? So I never had that time freedom. Mm-hmm. And I think it's really interesting that now that Lillian has been born and you have those time constraints now, you're like, okay, now I can't do this solo thing anymore. 
because mm-hmm. if I do the solo thing, I'm going to be spending all my time doing this. And I'm never going to see my kid. Yep. There's ways I could reconfigure the business to make the solo thing still work with both achieving business objectives and not uh, crunching my quality of life at the same time. But um, it's like, well, you know, like you get a certain number of decisions that you're allowed to make to move to levers. And it's like, at the end of the day, I like this identity of myself, solo entrepreneur, but not willing to compromise on my family because that's a terminal value for me. Like that's not on the table. And then it's like, okay, do I compromise more on what my desired identity is or do I compromise more on what the desired trajectory for the business is? And I was like, well, you know, the solo entrepreneur chapter was a great chapter in my life, but starting a new chapter, I feel like I'm kind of ready for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I might, you know, cry a tear or two about my like internal conception of what my business is like, but that's the only change that's going to happen to it. And on the you know positive side of the ledger, it's going to grow much faster, help other people out for supporting their families too, give my customers a better experience, and let me do more fun work on a day-to-day basis. Um, hmm, tough decision here. Yep, exactly, exactly. And uh, for me, I mean, that self-identity I think is important, but you also think, okay, growing the business isn't just for growing the business. Although, you know, with personality types like us, it's kind of like a game, right? We yep. want to grow the business because we like seeing the numbers go up. But... It is totally wild gold. It is. It really is. But at the end of the day, growing the business and making the business perform better gives you two major benefits for your family. One is the more automated your business is, the more time you get to spend with your family. Two is the more um, successful your business is, the more money you have in order to have that financial freedom with your family. Mm-hmm. Right? So I, I went to the States for three weeks a couple months ago. And I was talking with one of my dad's friends, who's he's retired now. But he was talking about when he was in his 30s, he had built up a number of brick and mortar stores. And he had managers and people were managing them. And he was sitting at the pool with his, with his co-founder on a Wednesday afternoon, just sipping margaritas. Mm-hmm. And he's like, isn't this amazing that we have this huge multi-million dollar business with 10 stores throughout the area and we're sitting here on a Wednesday afternoon sipping margaritas at the pool. Mm-hmm. Man, that is the life aside from the margarita. I'd be doing iced coffee. <laughs> I'd get bored with it. But I, I would get bored with it, but I'd like the freedom to do that. Yep, right? definitely. For me, the business automation, the freedom gives me two things. One, it gives me the freedom to spend the time I want with my family. And it gives me the freedom to focus on the parts of the business that I want to focus on. Right? I don't have to worry about putting out the payroll checks and making sure that all the checks get out there and pressing submit on all the forms because someone's doing that. I can go in and say, okay, we need to relook at our automation funnels. Or, hey, this marketing page is getting kind of stale. Let's let's redo it. Or, hey, why don't we call Jeff and set up this awesome new joint venture, mm-hmm. right? It gives me the freedom to be able to do that when you have a successful business. So it, it gives you freedom when you have an automated business. And it gives you freedom not only in your in your business life, but also in your personal life. Yep. Uh, one of the things, like, I don't know, I have a weird relationship with money. I think that's true of many people. Um, we we both got paid at the Japanese scale when we were working at Japanese organizations, which for uh, somebody right around our age is like plus or minus 30,000, 40,000 a year. Yeah. And it's not exactly a secret. Both of our businesses are doing uh, a little bit better than that these days. Um, <laughs> and My wife's very happy because she can now buy butter. 
Yeah. That's her major thing about me starting my business is now we can buy butter instead of margarine. Mm-hmm. The the biggest like concrete change it's made to my family's quality of life is uh, for semi-related to Lillian being born reasons, we decided to move from Ogaki to Tokyo. And uh, the rents here are pretty outstanding. <laughs> and, uh, like my rent is literally more than my um, last salary was in Japan. Um, so obviously this would not be a viable option, at least not living in the apartment I currently live in. Had we stayed on that trajectory, but it is, uh, I won't lie, when I see the rent get debited from my bank account every month, there's still a little bit of, that's a whole lot of money. But um, the business allows my family the opportunity to live in a place that my wife really loves, uh, that I'm really starting to like, and that uh, knock on wood will be a bit better for our daughters. And it's actually, it's interesting that you mentioned that because that's something that we talk about constantly is because of the business and the way I do my business, we have absolute freedom to be wherever we want. Mm-hmm. The problem is when the kids, I mean, kids are still in preschool, like we don't have this problem yet, but when they go into elementary and junior high, we're suddenly stuck at a place. We can't go off, off to the U.S. for three months because we want to, right? Mm-hmm. So it's really making us make the decision, okay, what do we want to do? Do we want to raise them in Ogaki, which is not a bad place, but it's not metropolitan. It's there. There's old ways of thinking. Do we want to live in Tokyo? Do we want to live in Osaka? Do we want to go to the States? My wife wants to go to Southern Italy. I'm not learning Italian. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> but it brings up a lot of questions about what do you want to do for the family and what do you want to do with your life? And if I was a salary man, there'd be no way to make this decision. I mean, mm-hmm. it wouldn't be a decision, right? I could not make this decision. This is where my job is. This is where I have to live. Or the decision might be uh, made for you without consulting. Oh, God, yeah. The, the um, hey, now you're working in Totori for no reason. Yep. Uh, Japanese companies, for those of you who haven't worked with them, have this uh, wonderful cultural thing called Tanshin Funin, which means that the uh, bosses can come up to you on Monday morning and say, hey, guess what? From Tuesday, you're going to be working out of your, our New York office. Um, or a place much less desirable to live in New York. And uh, BTW, it's just you. Your family won't be going with you. And uh, we think, you know, we'll start you off there for three years, but uh, we could call you back at any time or move you anywhere else at any time. Yeah. And that's not only abroad either. Because abroad, maybe you'd move your family over there. But the although most people don't, they have them inside Japan as well. So you're a three-hour uh, bullet train ride away from your family. Mm-hmm. Every day except Saturday and Sunday. I know a, uh, an engineer who is close to us in you know, age range and life circumstances, and he just got told that, well, hope you've had a great time living in Nagoya where you've lived your entire life. Uh, we will now name one of the most rural prefectures of Japan where we have a factory, and you are going to be supervising it starting tomorrow. Have fun. Yep. Yeah. Uh, Japanese companies. Oh, boy. That's another <laughs> discussion. But it, it fits in with our discussion of family. It's mm-hmm. it's actually one of the reasons. So my wife actually works with me now. She does our sales and marketing on the Japanese side. And she's really become an amazing marketer. And she was originally going, she has her teaching degree and she was going to be a teacher. And one of the things that teachers have in Japan is the first three years, you don't get to choose where you go. In fact, you don't get to choose most of the time, but the first three years especially, they send you to some godforsaken place for no reason whatsoever. And Gifu, where we live, is a fairly large prefecture compared to other prefectures. Like other prefectures, it maybe takes an hour to drive from one end to the other. 
Ours is about what four hours, three hours. Yep. It's a it's a huge prefecture, and they just love. We're in the absolute south, and they just love to send all the new teachers from here to the north. So she'd live five hours away by car, and at that point, it's like, well, I have a family. I have a husband. I have a kid. Am I going to live five hours away for three years just to become a teacher, and then maybe I'll get to come back? It really puts some big questions, and she decided to not become a teacher because of that. Mm-hmm. I mean, she had the highest ranks in her school. She was number one ranked for all her teaching certificates and everything, mm-hmm. and she didn't become a teacher because they would have forced her to move five hours away, and I couldn't go. Yep. So I think the uh, a lot of people make the other decision, too, which is, like, given the needs of the career, we will uh, sacrifice the uh, dreams of having family on that altar. Yeah. One of the reasons why the Japanese uh, uh, population growth rate is hitting lowest of low levels. Yep. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. They, you know, everyone always talks about, oh, why aren't people having kids in Japan? And there's two very big reasons. First of all, we're worked like dogs. Mm-hmm. Because if you have no time and you're too tired when you get home, there's no way you're going to have kids. The second one is there's no societal way to raise kids here. Like all of the preschools are completely full. I had to wait outside for two days to get my kid into preschool. There's no babysitters. There's no after-school services or anything for little kids. There's no way. It's getting slightly better, but not good enough. And the reason is, is because we didn't have nuclear families until recently. It used to be you lived with grandma and grandpa, and they helped take care of the kids. Mm -hmm. Well, now no one wants to do that. Even the grandmas and grandpas, they're like, I don't want to live with my kids. I I want to have my own life. But society is not catching up to that. And so this idea of that we have in the States of like play dates, like where you send your kids over to someone else's house and they all play together. And then one day it comes to, they all come and play at your house, et cetera. And the other parents get to take a day off. They don't have that here. Yep. Or the, you know, institution of babysitting. Like if you, if you explain babysitting to an average middle-class Japanese person, you get looks of like unrestrained terror on your face. In fact, I've actually been told, why would you trust your kid to another person? Yep. Like, how could you, especially a 16-year-old or an 18-year-old, right? Mm -hmm. And like, I don't know. That's how I was raised. I never had any problem. I'm still alive. This is one of those things where it's just, I think sometimes cultural differences are oversold, but this is definitely an American thing where it's like, yeah, sure. I would like to entrust my uh, four-month-old infant and my house and all of my possessions to a 12-year-old girl from the neighborhood who um, my only reason for trusting her is that she's from the same neighborhood and that one person said two sentences of recommendation on her behalf. Sounds totally reasonable. (laughs) Well, when you put it like that, I don't know how my parents ever decided to do that. One of my babysitters was actually named Candy, believe it or not, when I was younger. I don't think she lasted long. (laughs) Anyhow. (laughs) Funny we should mention that, but given that... uh, uh, it takes a village to raise a child burden tends to fall on family in Japan rather than falling on the rest of the village. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that I'm kind of like hoping to get out of growing the business is uh, uh, we're hoping to be able to support Ruriko's um, mother in moving to Tokyo. It's been something on her to-do list for a while, but uh, not something that she can afford on a pensioner's salary. Yeah. And uh, you know, if we were able to kind of help underwrite that, that would both achieve a goal for her and make uh, life a bit easier for us in having a you know, close family uh, close by helping to raise Lillian. 
I, I think that's amazing. That's the first I'd actually heard of that. So that's, I think that's amazing. I think it's good to have those business goals that are not business goals, right? Yep. Like there is a purpose to all of this grinding that we do every day. Exactly, exactly. I have a goal for this year that I'm not going to say out loud because I don't want to jinx it. But I was talking with some of my friends and one of my friends in particular, he says to his accountant, give me one number. This is the number that I need every month in order to live the life that I want to live, right? Mm -hmm. So I don't have to worry about money. That It takes into account all my general expenses. It gives me a $500 or $1,000 buffer every month that I can do fun stuff with. Give me that number. And that's the number that his SaaS has to reach every month. Mm -hmm. So that's the number that he shoots for. That's what he focuses all his attention on is raising that MRR number to that point. And it's, a, it's the same for me. I have, I have a goal that I want to do this year, hopefully in the summer. In order to do that, I have to have a certain amount of money coming in from the business. Mm -hmm. That means I have to automate it. I have to make sure that the business is growing in the right direction because even if I make the money and the business goes down, well, we can't do it, right? I, it has to be far enough that we have that safety net and that number. And that's our goal is to be able to reach that and uh, to have this fun thing that I'd like to set up. Mm -hmm. I would suggest, uh, just as a micro-tactical thing, put that goal on your dashboard. I had my revenue goal for a point right around the, on my uh, dashboard at the bottom of the screen, which is the wrong place for that. Because <laughs> as the business got more successful, the goal got like pushed down such that I would only ever see it if I control f and searched for it. Mm -hmm. And you know, stick it to the top of the screen instead so that every day you're, or you know, maybe every Monday you check in and say, okay, uh, where are we with regards to plan and uh, give yourself a little bit of a, a kick in the pants to do the work this week to uh, get you, you know, a fraction closer to it. Yeah. So we're actually going to, I think we're going to need to start winding down this episode, but I did want to mention one thing off of the, the having that number in front of you. So in another life, I did the inter-office dashboards. So it's essentially giant TVs with the KPIs, the numbers that matter for the business or for matter for that department. Mm -hmm. And there's this great psychological effect that when you have that number in front of you constantly, you're subconsciously always thinking about that number. And so you're always thinking, okay, how can we increase that number? How can we reduce that number if it needs to be reduced? What can we do to move that number? And so it's no longer... This thing that I'm thinking about once a week in the shower, oh yeah, we have to increase our opt-in rate, let's say, or decrease our churn rate. It's something that is always in front of you and having those numbers, not a ton of numbers, like maybe five or six that are important to you and show you the core of your business, psychologically, it's a huge motivator for getting to, for, to accomplish those goals. Yep, um, totally tracks with my experience. It's easy to, you know, even on really important numbers like your yearly revenue, if you don't have it automatically updated, you might not know where that is. That's sort of a surprising statement, right? But uh, until getting my bookkeeping systems improved recently, which, by the way, shout out to Bench, they've been instrumental in that. I did not know my yearly revenue until I did taxes every year. Like, yep. you know, I had a had a rough guesstimate, like, oh, it's well, it's certainly above a hundred. Uh, ish. <laughs> uh, there were a bunch of times over the years where I had laser-like degrees of precision with regards to my conversion rate, or I could tell you how many customers I had, you know, down to like three significant digits, 
And if you ask me how much money the business made last year, it would be like, um, don't know. Yep. So yeah, graph it somewhere, make it automatic. If but, you, you know, have company events, like make that one of the things that the daily standup meeting or not daily standup, the weekly yeah. standup meeting. It's like, and remember our KPIs are X, Y, and Z currently. Right. The goal I, is this, do your best on moving them in the right direction over the next period. And it's very important, like you say, you said X, Y, and Z. It's important not to have a ton. Everyone starts thinking, oh, I got to monitor all these numbers. These numbers are all important. But when you have too many numbers, you're not looking at anyone. Right. You can spend an unlimited t- amount of time in like Google Analytics on optimizing the conversion rate to email signups of people who are entering through this particular blog post. But that's not ultimately where the core growth of the business is going to come from. It's not where the major changes to your life, your employees' lives are going to come from. Right. And it goes back to those what we were talking about earlier with the hard stops, the limited time, the limited focus, pick three, mm-hmm. maybe five at the most. These are the things you need to focus on. Just like for my to-dos every day, I know I have a limited amount of time. I pick three goals that must be done and two stretch goals. And that's my to-do for the, for the day. Makes sense. All right. Well, I think we're in a pretty good uh, place for this episode of the podcast. Thanks, everybody, for your patience. Keith and I are not going to be trying to get these out uh, a little more frequently, although, hmm, this sounds like feeling so, deja I, I, th- I think we've said this for the last three years now. Although, I have to say, this one only, this, this podcast was only about 40 minutes, 30, 40 minutes. Very easy to knock out. Hopefully, we can get these out a bit more often. Yeah. Uh, looking forward to it. As always, we'd appreciate your thoughts on the podcast, uh, whether the new format works for you, what you'd like to hear about, drop either of us an email. My website is at www.calzimius.com, which, oh, well, you've presumably figured that out if you're listening to this. And uh, uh, Keith's uh, is at summitevergreen.com, where you can sign up for uh, some email about a service if you're interested in that. And our email addresses are readily accessible. All right. Thanks very much, Patrick. And thanks, everyone, for listening. Thanks much, Keith. Thanks, everybody, for your time, and we'll uh, see you again in a few weeks. Cheers.